tuning in to the 155th episode of Barbershop Sports Talk with me, your host, Daryl D. Lane, as always, being recorded from Buffalo, New York. I want to thank you for tuning in, whether it be via Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Google Music, WJCU, a radio station. Going to have a great show for you today. Going to have Kenny Sim on, does scouting for 247 Sports. I've had Kenny on a lot since this whole pandemic going on, the coronavirus still stopping sports, sadly. We're going to have Kitty on going to talk AFC North, so we're going to get some Browns talk in there. Also, AFC East, my Buffalo Bills, his grades for each team in the division. Some of it might surprise you, some of it might not, but good conversation, good content, and good talk. Now, where I want to start first is this. So, a lot of talk has been with the coronavirus going on, obviously, if we will have live sporting events anytime soon. The UFC uh, and Dana White, they had a fight before Mother's Day, I believe, so like last week, uh, almost a little over a week ago. But when are team sports going to start? Because that's the more interesting thing, because you can make it work for an individual sport. You can have everybody kind of isolate, quarantine, do their own thing and monitor that way. But when it comes to team Inherently, you're going to have a lot of people being around each other and the whole thing with the coronavirus is I don't want to bore you with it, but the, the whole issue with the coronavirus is you don't want to be around other people because that's how it spreads. Now, there have been a couple of things to note recently in the news cycle that would make me think that the leagues, especially the NBA, they're going to try to start the season. And I know some people think it's not going to happen because of what I just mentioned. There's been some criticisms such as if we try to start the NBA, we're taking tests away from people that actually need it because there's going to need to be tests that test people for the coronavirus. If you're testing on players, you're not testing on people who actually need it. The fact that, you know, why are we trying to do all this when a pandemic's going on? Everybody should just be inside. It's not worth it. The losing teams, do they want to still play? Do the New York Knicks want to go out of their house, be away from their wife and children, and do they want to drag themselves out of bed and, and play 10 more games if they decide to have a little semblance of the regular season before they go to the postseason? Like, how's it all going to work? But here's why I think the NBA is going to at least try it, and it's really gaining momentum. One, Adam Silver in his conference, uh, in, in the league conference, 40% of the NBA's revenue comes from fans. Now, obviously, having fans is a long shot, but here's why this is important. 40% is a lot. And I assume the rest of that can be recouped in advertising and in television revenue, right? Streaming. That's probably where the rest of that money is going. But 40% is a lot. And that's also why they want to have the game. So they can at least recoup some of the money. Because I believe they're going to have to pay back the TV contracts if they can't, if they can't get it going. But they're going to lose at least 40%. 40% is a lot, and I'm not a math guy. 40% is a lot. If I told you your boss was going to cut 40% of your salary, you would leave. You'd be looking for a new job. John Carroll, right? That said, 40% of students who go to John Carroll don't graduate? When they tell you that when you're on your tour, <laughs> mom and dad look at each other like, we're not sending little Johnny there, right? 40% is a lot. 40% of anything, up or down, is a lot. It's a big difference. It's not one, it's not two, it's not even 10%. Hell, 10% is a lot. But 40% is a huge sum. Now we get into star players. During, there was a meeting, and during that meeting, Chris Paul, president of the Players Association of the NBA, talked to stars, who were all on board, by the way, about trying to figure out having a, a, a season, a postseason. These guys that all agreed, LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Kevin Durant, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Kawhi Leonard, Stephen Curry, Damian Lillard, Russell Westbrook. Off the top of my head, those are probably the 10 best players in the NBA. The only people that 
you're probably missing are Luka Doncic, maybe a Joel Embiid, James Harden. But basically, those are the guys. You get Kevin Durant, LeBron James, Steph Curry, Kawhi Leonard in a room. Those are the guys. Right? And we know the NBA is about the player, what the star wants. And all these guys, they want to go and play. And then we have some states are starting to open up. The governor of Florida uh, announced, and I don't, uh, I forget his name at the moment, but the governor of Florida announced they will allow, you know, start lessening restrictions. You know, pro sports teams can play, they can train. Things are going to start opening up a little bit. And why is that so important? Because coincidentally, or uncoincidentally, Orlando is one of the spots Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, talked about players uh, having uh, games at. It was Orlando and it was Vegas. Those were the two locations that were mentioned. Orlando and Florida, obviously. So things are starting to roll here. And I believe there's, oh, there's also a report the NBA hopes that about 22 of the 30 teams in the league, they're going to be able to open up their facilities. So, so, so the ball, the ball's rolling, folks. The ball's rolling. I don't know how good the basketball will be when it happens, right? You're having players with a layoff. I, I don't know how it's going to look. You can have injury. There's a lot of things that can go wrong, but they're going to try to do it. Star players want to play. State's starting to lessen up restrictions just a little bit. And money. And realistically, if the NBA and the players, they're all on the same page and the owners and Adam Silver, they can make it happen. And it looks like all parties want to make it happen. Now, I do also want to get to this, right? So, the Michael Jordan documentary, I had uh, Zach Witherford on my last podcast. But what was really interesting about the Michael Jordan documentary, episodes 7 and 8, was how they talked about Jordan needed a break right his father dies his father is tragically murdered takes a lot of toll on his mind then there are reports and people in the in the media are writing maybe michael's gambling has to do with his father dying and a, and a lot of stuff going on and even one of the the writers who covered the bulls at the time said michael was tired during when the dream team was going on and he was like if it wasn't for the dream team right now, my contract still being, uh, I have being obligated to play on my contract, I would be gone already. And I think that's powerful. But I think when you think of all that, I think it when you kind of connect both LeBron and Michael, it shows the one thing that LeBron has over Michael. I do not think LeBron is a better basketball player than Michael. I don't think he was a better scorer or a better winner. I don't think he was a better defensive player. I think there's a lot of things where you can make the argument Michael's better than LeBron. But here's why LeBron's better, what LeBron has over Michael, and where LeBron has the chance to kind of surpass Michael in the GOAT opinion, and and where he could very easily for most people that are listening, and uh, most people in general. Consistency. LeBron, you know, LeBron's gone through it all. He's been the most talked about athlete since he's been like 14. When Michael Jordan was 14, he got cut from his basketball team. He got cut from the varsity basketball team. Nobody knew who the hell Michael Jordan was. Right? When LeBron James was 14, ESPN was coming to the games. So much pressure. So much expectation. Jordan comes in as a number three pick. Right? Everybody's like, he's not Sam Bowie. He, he's not a Kim Olajuwon. Small. You can't, everybody was surprised how good Michael was. LeBron comes in, number one overall pick to his hometown team, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Expectations right away. Also, social media and the media in general. Radio shows, podcasts, news. The cycle is so different. It's a 24-hour cycle. People are always talking about LeBron James. Have his family in his mouth. People have talked about his kids. We're speculating where his kid Bronny was going to go to school last year. That, Michael never had to deal with that. And Michael got tired of a kind of a lesser version of that. And Michael was like, I'm done. LeBron has played the whole time. And that's why he's going to pass Michael in points. He already passed Michael in points. He might be able to pass Kareem when it's all said and done in total points. And by sheer raw numbers, he will pass Michael in everything. Because he's played longer. 
Michael needed a break and retired in the prime of his career. People always say, Michael could have won eight. Well, I don't know if Michael could have won eight. Because you want to know what? Michael wasn't mentally there at the time. And Michael was like, you know, Evan, I'm kind of done with basketball, right? That's not winning eight straight. Mentally, he was tired. He might have been. He might have hit the wall when they're going for a fourth peat the year after they beat the Phoenix Suns. LeBron, and that's why LeBron, more overall points, assists, rebounds, blocks, steals, been to more finals, even though Jordan has more rings. So I cannot blame LeBron because he, he, this is the one thing he's done over Michael. And what it's all said and done, 30, 40 years from now, people that didn't see either of them play, they're going to look at all the numbers and they're going to be like, really? How was Michael better than LeBron? That's what's going to happen. Because LeBron was able to play through it all. Year 18, and still going strong. And one of the biggest media markets in the country, second to New York City, Los Angeles. A lot of speculation, everything going around. And people want to talk about, right? Well, my Michael, people talk about Michael's father, how his father passed. People were talking about LeBron James' mother, and I don't really want to get into that because that's not the point, but LeBron is on that level of speculation being talked about where it could annoy any regular, normal, you know, sane even being. Everybody gets it. Nobody likes to be talked about all the time, no matter the benefits that go with it. But that's the one thing that LeBron has over Michael, and I think that's what could potentially shift the GOAT conversation. Just an interesting tidbit for you all. Now, cut him next. After the break on Barbershop Sports Talk, we're going to have Kenny Sim on the show. Cut him next. After the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. Stadium packed full of fans, full of fans. Pistol offense, I'm a scram, I'm a scram. Quarterback draw, touchdown, touchdown, touch, touch, touchdown, touchdown, touch, touch, touchdown, touchdown, touch, touch, touchdown, touchdown. Take it to the air or the ground. Took a loss, had me really on slim fans. Slim fans. Man, working hard like gym class. When you're out this way, you gon' get smashed. What's my Oh, we're back with Barbershop Sports Talk, and we have. After a little bit, my guy, Kenny Sim with us, does a lot of scouting for 247 Sports. How you doing, Ken? Good, man. It's good to be back on the barbershop, Daryl. Looking forward to kind of closing out the draft season for 2020. Climax of the draft is kind of like the climax of the movie, but then he kind of you know, it's always good to kind of do a little bit of like the, like in the movie, like a falling action, kind of recap it, put a bow on the draft, see what teams made their needs, who got some young talent, who did good, who didn't, and then kind of use that as kind of like a springboard into like your power rankings going into the summer, and then it's kind of done with the NFL until we start training camp, so this is kind of the last chance for teams to get better and prove themselves. By the way, do you think training camp is like, like how do you think that's going to work with corona going on yeah so what i think's going to happen is i think um I'm, I'm i'm fairly confident that you're going to get football this this fall i'm not sure if there's going to be fans or not but i think the thing to watch is on june 1st the english premier league start that's a big league multi-billion dollar franchises they're starting without fans. So I think if that is something to watch, if that works, if, if, if that goes off without a hitch and they're playing games and no one gets the virus and things are going well minus the fans, a lot of the sports leagues in North America and the United States could learn from that, see kind of what they did with all the logistics and stuff. And I think the biggest benefactor of that's the NFL because they're going to be playing in these huge stadiums and they have the benefit of time on their side. So they could see what worked, what didn't work for the English Premier League and get it going. So, yes, I do think with that and the amount of money at stake, really, I think nine figures, billions of dollars worth of networks, they're going to find a way to have pro football this year. I'm very confident in that. And, 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 and I actually think it's going to start um, close to schedule on 
on on time. Now, is there going to be fans? Not sure on that yet. Um, and then, and then in terms of training camp, like like you mentioned, I think they're going to need about six weeks is a good amount of time for prep for the season. So you kind of walk that back, end of July or so, beginning of August even. We're about three months exactly from where that's going to take place. So um, I think they're all going to start, start start at once, though. So the NFL is really big into competitive balance, so it's like all or nothing. All the teams are allowed to go in the facility, or no teams are allowed to go in the facility if some uh, health officials have an area kind of in lockdown still. So I think there is going to be a training camp. I'm not sure if it's going to start off right like kind of at the end of July, but I think what is a goal is definitely about five or six weeks before the schedule starts is to have camp and then go from there. That's kind of how I think it's going to um, it's going to happen. Now, do you think we'll see college? College football? Um, yeah, I so, so yes, the short answer is yes, I do. Um, and a couple of things on that note is they have, um, that's a little harder because I think some schools don't want to have games or don't want to have their student athletes back if they don't have the student body back. So, you know, how can you say it's safe for, you know, football players to come into campus and congregate when it's not even safe enough for them to invite the entire student body. But I think it's important to remember um, there it, it, it's a little bit different because you, you have this layer at play for college football, Daryl, other than the NFL. So for college football, you really have some schools, especially the small schools like the group of five schools, the football budget in football that is the budget for the entire athletic department. And even some bigger schools, um, some, some, some bigger schools, the, the, the only school, the, the only teams that make money for the athletic department are the football team and the basketball team, really. Uh, you might have a third one here and there, but really those two uh, programs carry the athletic budget. And I was reading something, just, just to get a glimpse, Daryl, is, is the University of Alabama. So you could kind of take this um, and see how it matches up with the big schools here. Is um, they had an athletic budget the past year of 170 million dollars. 110 of that came from football. That's about 60 percent of your entire budget comes from one program. So you just think, I mean, if you don't have football for some of these smaller schools, you don't have baseball, you don't have women's basketball, you don't have the Olympic sports because football funds all that. So ultimately, I think you are going to see football, college football being played. Again, not sure about fans in the stands or not, but I, I do think there is going to be college football. And I think we could be going on a little bit of a Wild West, too, because I know what I've been seeing is a few conferences, some teams are going to participate, some might not, depending on the circumstances in their area. So you could have a school like a like you could have a conference like the Big Ten, and you know all fourteen schools might not participate in football. Maybe like eight or ten of them. So that's an interesting dynamic. But without college football, I don't think you could have for the fiscal calendar college athletics because it funds. I mean, sometimes I mean it could fund you know over seventy percent of the budget comes from the football program. So it's very important for colleges to have college football, I think you're going to get that in some way. Uh, great job by you, Kenny. Uh, I actually, I agree with you. And uh, the when you, when you put it that way, obviously, there's a, there's a lot at stake and uh, a lot of monetary reasons for both professionally and college to why you would uh, try to have games going on or at least attempt it, especially when you mention if things go sound and well and the Premier League in Europe, right? Now, mm-hmm. since this is why you're here, we're going to talk about the draft. And here's what I thought. I thought we were going to start with the AFC North. I, I think a, a team that you said, I last time you came on the podcast, you talked about the Ravens draft and how much you liked it. So we're going to start with the AFC North, and we're going to start with the Ravens. They were the number one seed in the 
AFC last year. I like the Ravens draft. You know, they got Patrick Queen, linebacker out of LSU. I also believe they got J.K. Dobbins, very good running back out of Ohio State. How did you like the draft for the Baltimore Ravens? Yeah, there's always a reason, you know, there's always a reason why teams win and why teams lose. And the Baltimore Ravens, what they do in the draft year in, year out, is a perfect reason why teams continue to win after all these years um, over time. One of the model organizations in football. The Baltimore Ravens had a great draft, and, and it's just so typical of the Ravens. Um, I just want to highlight, I want to highlight uh, four, uh, uh, three picks of note to make a point is they stayed right where they picked and they took the best guy at the position that they were looking at. Pick 27, the Seattle Seahawks took Jordan Brooks. The Seattle Seahawks could have waited in the second round and Jordan Brooks would have been there. Next pick, Baltimore Ravens at 28. They get the better linebacker in Patrick Queen. I think everybody had Patrick Queen better than Jordan Brooks. Come back in the second round, Cam Akers goes to the Rams. Um, about two or three picks later, Ravens take running back J.K. Dobbins. I think a lot of us had J.K. Dobbins better than Cam Akers. And then come back at the end of round three is is um, Cleveland Browns took Jacob Phillips. One pick later, the Ravens took Malik Harrison, who I actually had higher than Phillips. Um, I think a lot of a lot of industry sources had Malik Harrison as well. So that just—I mean—that's just the perfect example of how they waited and they got their guy. And the other thing the Baltimore Ravens did is they don't just plug a need with one guy. If they have a need at a position group, they hammer it with draft picks. They needed um, inside linebacker. That was a need for them. That was a weak spot. One of the only weak spots. They hammer that with two guys um, with high draft capital: Jacob Phillips, and not only Jacob Phillips. They come back with Malik Harrison. So that's just how you kind of just, how do you fix the need and you just throw a lot of resources at it, not just one. So I like that. And then I also like, you know, you talked about scheme fit too. They get Devin Duvernay out of Texas, sub 4-4 guy, just more speed, that kind of that slot guy, not, not, not really like a downfield threat, but a slot guy, a guy that can run the jet sweep, perfect for what Lamar Jackson and the Ravens do on the offensive side of the ball and then they kind of come back and 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 I think they had great value just take a look at their seventh round pick Geno Stone I had a draftable grade on Geno Stone I think a lot of people had Geno Stone fourth round pick fourth round fourth fifth round grade they get him in round seven this is a guy that could be core four four special teams plays all of them work into the pool at safety they get him in the seventh round um and they just continue to utilize the system of compensatory draft picks as well. They had 10 picks. Um, they utilized that better than any team in the NFL. I thought the Ravens had one of the best drafts in all of the NFL, not just the AFC. How many guys in this draft can contribute day one? For the Ravens. I think five. I think five. I think five. I think Patrick Queen is going to start for them. I think J.K. Dobbins is going to be in the pool with Mark Ingram. They got a really good, really athletic three technique, Justin Matabuke. He can work into that pool. That's a really good defensive line group, though. I think he'll get on the field. Devin Duvernay will get in the field as well. And Malik Harrison, I think he'll compete for time at linebacker. I think five guys right off the bat could um, come in and play for them. And then just a six-round pick, too, another slot guy, James Prochet, who I like a lot in the slot, too. Just another weapon. I don't know if he'll contribute, but that's just another example of how the Ravens kind of just let the draft come to them and they get great value at all seven rounds. So for you, Kenny, what would be your draft grade for the Ravens? If you're going to give them a grade. Yeah, I'd give them an A. I'd give them an A. And usually when I look at draft grades, um, I really, I really, I understand people do them. I really don't like doing them because I think, you need to give it three years and then assess. So you should be looking back at the 2017 draft right now for your favorite team and see how they do. But I think if you get about, I think if you get about four guys, half your picks to really contribute for their rookie contract, that's a good draft. So I think the Ravens will have four or five guys that will be the core players on their team for the next several years. So I, so, so I do give them an A. I like what they did.
Now I want to go to the Pittsburgh Steelers. They didn't have a first-round pick, but they drafted uh, Chase Claypool, wide receiver out of Notre Dame. What was your take on the Steelers draft? Obviously, no first-round pick. Uh, trading for Minka Fitzpatrick, that pick uh, ended up going to the Miami Dolphins. What did you make of the Steelers draft? Yeah, I thought of the three teams of the AFC North, I thought the Steelers had a, I thought the Steelers had a little bit of an underwhelming draft. So they had one, two, three, four, five. They had six picks. So you would like to see three of those really be solid players to be like an above-average draft. So they get Chase Claypool, who really came on only because he's a classic lightweight speed guy. He was like a 99th percentile athlete. I'm not sure in the NFL he could do anything other than run fast in a straight line, though. <laughs> um, so that was a little so, – so, so that was a pick. I think there might have been some better receivers on the board. And then they get um, their, their other high draft capital pick on day two is Alex Hightower uh, – or uh, Highsmith, excuse me. So Alex Highsmith, a really productive player at Charlotte, though, but um, he's a little raw. He doesn't have those, uh, those elite athletic traits like an edge rusher. However, the Pittsburgh Steelers really do develop their edge rushers well, no better than T.J. Watt. So, you know, if he had to go to a team, I think the Steelers would be a team that could develop him, although I really don't. Uh, I think it's a little bit of a projection, though, to see how he kind of does. Uh, the pick I do like for them is Anthony McFarland, really dynamic, former five-star recruit um, from Maryland, did really, really well there. So they kind of have like a three-person pull in the backfield. They want to reduce the carries of James Conner. They have Jalen Samuel, um, Benny Snell, and Anthony McFarland. I think McFarland might kind of take Jalen Samuel's spot. So um, just another, you know, tool you could put in the running back room. But um, other than that, you know, they got some guys that might contribute on special teams like Antron Brooks and stuff. But... um, for a team that didn't make the playoffs, though, you'd really want a first-round pick. Um, I know, like, Malik um, uh, Fitzpatrick would be considered their first pick, but um, I thought other teams had better drafts on paper than the Steelers. Now, here's what I would push back a little bit, and I'll ask you this. Can we not get in? You mentioned Claypool. You don't know how he'll translate. He seems like he's just a, more of a track guy right than an actual receiver. But but I just want to say this. The Steelers, they're known for drafting very good wide receivers, from Antonio Brown, Juju Smith-Huster, uh, Emmanuel Sanders, Martavius Bryant. So, do you think there, it's possible that we could give the Steelers the benefit of the uh, the benefit of the doubt and say, you know, they're very good at identifying players for that particular position, or or do you think Claypool is, uh, you know, you're just not a fan? So, so the Steelers should definitely get the benefit of the doubt. Um, really, no position more than the position of wide receiver. We'll have to see how Juju Smith does. I, I, I know there's some questions about his viability as a true number one wide receiver and giving him wide receiver money. He's in the last year of his contract. Um, but but Claypool is a guy, if you could develop him um, other than kind of just running in a straight line, you know, he's 6'4", 240. Um, he could develop into a red zone threat at least. Be kind of a better version of a James Washington. Maybe he takes James Washington's spot, possibly. So you do need to give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, however, I think if you're looking at, you know, maybe over the next two years, you know, maybe one and a half players in this class could contribute. Claypool, Highsmith, McFarland, you know, maybe one and a half of those guys would be, you know, a core player. So we'll have to see on the Steelers, though. And what would your grade be for the Pittsburgh Steelers? Yeah, so for the Steelers, I'd give them a C. I think it's an average draft. Um, and we'll see, you know, in a few years, if you look back on it, see how many. So of those six, how many are, like, true starters? Um, see if they could get maybe three starters that are plus starters, above average starters, to be a good class. So I'll give them a C, average job for them. Um, however, I think you got to consider – Minka Fitzpatrick in that first round grade as well, so you know bump it up to maybe a C plus. Yeah, and that's also true because you know their first round pick, in all intents and purposes, was Minka Fitzpatrick, right? So, so do you count that in your grade at all? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm moving from like a C to like a C plus. Um, uh, it's not a true first round pick, but Mika Fitzpatrick, what he's in, he just finished up. He was the uh, 2018 class, so he finished up year two on a rookie contract. So, um, if you wanted to, you could consider him in this class. Um, I'm gonna kind of just stick to the actual draft pitch, though, but. Um, you could do that as well, just being, you know, the comparable to, and like I said, he's he's a highly ta- talented player on a rookie contract. Now let's go to your team, the Cleveland Browns. They draft with their first overall, their uh, number one overall draft pick, uh, their first round draft pick, Jedrick Willis, tackle out of Alabama, offensive tackle out of Alabama. Well, what, and they also got Grand Delphit, too, in the second round. What did you make of the Browns' draft? Yeah, I really think the Browns had a really positive draft. I really liked what they did, actually. Um, there's been some years where they didn't take my guys in the top two first round that I've been a little critical on, but I really thought the Browns had a good draft this year. Um, and, 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 and I say that, I'm going to try to do this analysis with you, Daryl, without brown and orange glasses on, but... Um, I know I was talking to a couple of people, and I said, whoever got Grant Delpit basically got two first-round picks. Um, I really think the Cleveland Browns hit it out of the park in the first two picks, Jedrick Wills and Grant Delpit. So Jedrick Wills, I had him as a second tackle. I know a lot of people had him as the best tackle in the class. Really solid technique, solid footwork. He's got to convert over to the left side, but I don't think that'll be too big of a problem. And then Grant Delpit. Um, I know when we had our safety show that we were talking about, um, I was getting a little sick of the Grant Delpit slander. I mean, this is a guy that came in, consensus All-American after a sophomore year. Uh, Mel Kuyper had him, looking back at his big board to start the year, he had him as the number three prospect. Um, so I think the Cleveland Browns got a classic traffic cop patrolling the back end of the secondary with Grant Delpit. I think he brings a swagger and a leadership, too. I really think that's a great pick by the Cleveland Browns, and they, and, and, and they needed a safety, too. So um, I think those two picks kind of kick-started a solid draft by the Browns. What would your grade be for the Browns? Yeah, so my grade, I'm going to give them a B plus. I thought it was an above-average draft. I think you'll get those two guys to contribute day one. And I think a guy, um, I think a guy to really kind of keep track under the radar in the third and on, on day three is they got Harrison Bryant, the tight end out of FAU. Harrison Bryant, Bryant first tight end since 2013 in college football to have a thousand yards receiving. Mackey award winner. Uh, Kevin Stefanski likes to use those two tight end sets a lot. He did it more than any any offense in the NFL last year. So they get Harrison Bryant um, in a tight end room with Njoku and Austin Hooper. So I think you could see the benefit of that pick pay off for years to come just by the time they'll get on the field too. And then and, and then they took a flyer um, with a really athletic Donovan Peoples Jones out of Michigan. They took a flyer on him on, on day three, the sixth round. I like that pick as a as, as a no risk, high reward pick. Uh, sixth round pick, but you know, if he could contribute to the pool and eventually be a starter with his traits, um, that'd be a phenomenal pick. Yeah, and you're so I ta- think, you know, just an upside pick there, and overall, uh, pretty good drop. Pretty good drop, drop job by the Browns. They had, they had a process, they had a plan, and I really like how they drafted guys that fit what they're doing schematically on offense and defense with those two new coordinators and new coaching staff. And the six-round pick at wide receiver that you're mentioning, Donovan Peoples-Jones, a guy that also was, a, I believe, a consensus top prospect coming out of high school, and I believe was even Mel, like Mel Kiper or Todd McShay, somebody like that, had them had him in the first or second round. He just kind of dwindled down. Which my question to you would be: Do you think Jim Harbaugh actually hurt his stock? Oh yes, I think they did. Um, I think with I I, I think with Jim Harbaugh, um, I think a lot of um, a lot of wide receivers there that go to school um, kind of suffer with that offense. It's an it's an older offense, older schematically. Um, I think that does hurt the passing game, along with not having a quarterback too. Agreed. Now, where we're gonna go? 
The Cincinnati Bengals, they have the number one overall pick right in the draft. They get Joe Burrow. But also, they get Joe some help. T. Higgins. And it actually kind of reminds me of back in the 2011 draft uh, a decade ago when Joe Burrow's predecessor was Andy Dalton. They draft A.J. Green in the first round. Then they go, you know what? Let's get in. Let's get him a guy to throw, that's going to throw him the ball, Andy Dalton, in the second round. They kind of do it the reverse way. They get the quarterback with their first pick, and then in the second round they get the wide receiver. What did you make of the Bengals draft? Yeah, so the Bengals draft is, is, is um, the Bengals went with one, two, three, four, five. They went with seven, seven picks. They had the first pick in every single round. Um, this draft is largely going to be determined by if Joe Burrow hits as a franchise QB or not. But there's a couple of things that the, the Bengals did here that um, really I think they had a really good draft. First thing is obviously Joe Burrow. We've talked about him at nauseum. But you look at what Joe Burrow has around him now. This isn't a 2-14 and 14 team that has is, is talent-deprived. So you have A.J. Green, Tyler Boyd, John Ross, now T. Higgins, big wide receiver, uh, they, they come back with. And then I kind of want to touch upon these linebackers. So they had a highly productive grinder in Logan Wilson in round three. I know some people were high on. And then I like this pick here, Akeem Davis-Gaither, really fast linebacker, athletic out of Appalachian State, goes sideline to sideline. I think they potentially got two starters at linebacker with those picks. Um and then they filled linebacker again with their last pick, Marcus Bailey. So they really hammered the linebacker room. But if you hit on two of those linebackers, T. Higgins and Joe Burrow, that's four guys in this class to be your core going forward. I think all those guys have a chance to play for a long time for you know, the length of their rookie contract and be productive. So um, Joe Burrow then has um, he's got Joe Mixon in the backfield too. So it's, it's a pretty good skill room that he enters into. It's not like one of those teams that are 1-15, 0-16, and, oh and, and there's no talent around them. Joe Burrow has talent in Cincinnati. And what would your grade be for the Bengals? Yeah, I'd give the, um, I'd give the Bengals an A- minus, pending how Joe Burrow does. So um, if he does turn out to be like a, like a Carson Palmer or a Matt Ryan, they get their quarterback. You get an A if you get if, if you hit hit on your quarterback. That's everything. Um, and so if he doesn't hit, then you know missing with that amount of draft capital is going to move you down. And, uh, I can't see how that. Just, I, I mean, just, just just looking at teams in the past that have missed on a quarterback and looking at their draft classes, I don't know how you could say it could be any better than average. But I'm high on Joe Burrow. I think he's in a good situation. Overall, I'd be optimistic as a Bengals fan. Um, I give them an A minus. So we just reviewed the AFC North. The Steelers have the worst grade, which also is not the best when you look forward to the future because they're the oldest team. So you would expect they have the most. You know, they they would really need to draft the most out of all these teams to kind of inject some youth into their organization. Uh, not the case, according to my man Kenny. Now let's go to the AFC East. And let's start with my team, the Buffalo Bills. They draft A.J. Espinoza, a guy, as we talk about players, that kind of fell off the board. I, I believe some people were talking about him being the second best D-end in the draft, uh, aside from Chase Young. We've talked about him at length. Well, what was your uh, thoughts on the Buffalo Bills draft? Yeah, Buffalo Bills, um, I think they continue to have good drafts under Billy Bean. Um I would say, I mean, the Dolphins had the most picks by volume, and obviously they got a potential franchise QB in Tua, but I think uh, the Bills might have been my favorite draft in the AFC East. So they get a guy that falls into their lap, A.J. Vanessa, who, I mean, coming into the season and even during the season, he played like a first-round pick. Just a classic guy that plays the run well. He's really a really good system fit for Sean McDermott and that defense to take the place of like a Kyle Williams. Um, and then they get Zach Moss. And Zach Moss is a wild card because um, I think he's a three-time, two-time offensive player of the year in the Pac-12. Um, really productive player if you take a look. I think he had 31 touchdowns in three years. And, and he's 
He's a little bit more talented than Devin Singletary. The thing with Zach Moss is he's beat up. He's a physical player. He gets beat up a lot. So see if he can stay on the field. But but the Bills have to be able to run the football with Josh Allen. If they get Zach Moss and Singletary, talent-wise, Moss is better than Singletary. You know, that could pay some dividends quickly. Didn't really like the Jake Fromm pick, but one of the picks I did like at the end was Isaiah Hodgins out of Oregon State. Tied Brandon Cooks for the most touchdowns at Oregon State's history. I think he could work into the pool. He's a big body, large catch rate radius for uh, Josh Allen. I think he could work into the pool at wide receiver with Beasley and Brown and Stephon Diggs. Um, I like him a little bit more than Gabriel Davis. Um, so overall, I think the Bills got about three or four players that could contribute, and then and then they felt this, and and then they fit their need with that kicker. Yeah, you, you had Stephen House go with seventy four percent, I think he was last year. So they dropped a kicker. Round six is a good value for a kicker. Ultimately, it's going to be whether you can put the ball through the uprights or not. But you know, kind of a question mark with the Bills is kicker, and they they drafted a kicker. So we'll see how they do there. And what would your grade for the Bills be? Yeah, I think it's a solid B. Um, so obviously, with no first round pick, um, that that kind of brings down their ceiling. But the Bills, I don't think the Bills really have a lot of holes on their team. So this was a kind of a workmanlike draft. They had no glaring need that they absolutely had to address. I think the one that they had to address was a wide receiver, and they did that with Stephon Diggs. Now I want to go to the Miami Dolphins. You mentioned they have a volume of draft picks. They draft two attack below a quarterback out of Alabama. Uh, have a bunch of draft picks. Uh, also draft Austin Jackson, tackle out of USC. What did you make of the Miami Dolphins draft, Kenny? Yeah, I really thought the Miami Dolphins, what 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 they did, and um, something to kind of monitor is they went with. Uh, so they do have an analytical front office, and what they did is they went right off the bat with positions of value. That's where they drafted. They went quarterback, they went left tackle, and they went cornerback. Probably, maybe, I mean three of the top four positional values. Um, I think it's going to take some time to develop Austin Jackson and Noah um, Noah I, I call him, out of Auburn, but two-year player, really raw, but in two years of playing football at a high level, turned into a first-round pick. Track guy really fast. I think there's a lot of upside there. Uh, they get kind of a plugger and Robert Hunt. Uh, but day two and day three is where you can really find interior linemen to come in and start. Kind of just, uh, it's a good thing if you don't know their names and not making mistakes on the field, you could get some good value in the midday inside. Um, and then they come back with, you know, they get some, they get some guys to kind of fill their roster. I think last year, I think, I think about 40 out of their 50 guys were fourth round picks or lower. So fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh are undrafted. I think they had 20 some undrafted guys on their roster. It's a miracle that they won five games, but they have a great coaching staff that developed. So they have uh, they got another guy, too, out of Georgia to compete on the interior offensive line. So I think it's um, I think it's going to come down to Tua's health, obviously. But, you know, I think you could see some impact immediately because their top three picks were all at, you know, positions that significantly win or lose football games for you. You think we'll see Tua right away? No, I don't think you'll see him right away. I think ideally what, what, what the Dolphins want to do is register him for a year, but um, I, could see, I could see them going with, Fitz, with Fitzpatrick for a good amount of time uh, before they turn it over to Tua eventually. I think you will see Tua. You, um, I mean, teams say all the time they want to give a redshirt year and quarterbacks come in way quicker than they should be. So I think you will see Tua eventually, maybe in the middle of the year. Now, I want to ask you this. What's your grade for the Dolphins draft? Because, you know, we've made a lot about, really the last couple of years, you know, how they're tanking, how they've all been building towards the draft, even to how they traded Minka Fitzpatrick to the Pittsburgh Steelers and got all these picks. What is your grade for the Miami Dolphins right now? Yeah, I'm going to give them a, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give them a B plus. Um, so, so I think they had a, a promising draft. I think that die-hard Dolphins fans 
And there is a lot of Dolphins fans who are diehards over the years from like Dan Marino. I think they're coming out of the woodworks and they're buying in a little bit. So, so I'd be optimistic if I'm a Dolphins fan uh, with Tua and 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 that team. Um, they they did um, with Austin Jackson and Noah I. You know those 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 are guys that are going to take some time that you got to work with. So I don't think they're going to come in and play at a really high level, like a Pro Bowl level, like you would maybe some corners and tackles in this class. So you got to be a little patient with them. But overall, you know, if you were to say in the beginning of the year, the Dolphins would win five games, they have their guy that always wanted to take him to a, and they got him at pick number five still, and they got their blindside protector, and they got potentially, you know, another corner to go in a room that has a really good corner room with Howard and Byron Jones. I'd be really happy if I'm a Dolphins fan. I give them a B plus. I think they, they did some good things during the draft as well. Now, the team that has won the AFC East, it seems, for centuries. Not centuries, last couple decades. Still a long time, NFL years. The New England Patriots. They get Kyle uh, Duggar, safety. I also like Anthony Jennings, uh, linebacker out of Alabama. They got him as well. What did you make of the Pats draft? They did not get a quarterback, which is something that was heavily speculated. What did you make of the Patriots draft? What, what would you say for Billy Belichick? Yeah, so Bill Belichick is not one to kind of uh, – he, he's not afraid to stray from the consensus draft board a bit. Um, there were some picks that were a little questionable. Um, overall, I thought they had kind of an average draft. So, so to kind of like walk through it, um, they're going with their young quarterback in the roster, Jared Stidham. So, so they didn't take a quarterback. Um and then they come back with Kyle Duggar. I like Kyle Duggar a lot. Really versatile player. He, 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 he's going to do well there um, in, in New England, you know, playing multiple positions on that defense. Got a great coaching staff to help him do that, too, from D2 uh, to the NFL. And then they got uh, Josh Uchey out of, Alabama, uh, out of, out of Michigan. Um, sort of take some work as a pass rusher. And then, and then I want to center in on these tight ends. So the tight end board was kind of scattered all around. I mean, it, 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 it was just a class of back tight ends other than a few, maybe one or two. And so they go back-to-back tight ends in round three. Um, Devin um, Asai play. Um, 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 um. Um, 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 but I think he, but I think he, 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 he's more centered as a backup. And then they come back and they get Dalton King, who's definitely a backup. He just ran well to kind of get some buzz. But uh, I know some people that would have him like as a fifth or sixth round grade. So a little questionable that they went back to back tight ends there um, versus other things. Anthony, Anthony Jennings, nice player. Decent edge rusher um, might might kind of stack up to like a Courtney Upshaw, like a Williams and Williams comparison outside linebackers out of Alabama. So, I mean, it was a you know he's going to play the run well. I'm not sure from the pass rush, and then a couple of these guys were completely off the radar on day three. So like like a Dustin Woodard, um, we'll have to see on that. I mean. Um, just kind of see how they do there. And, and and it's okay to criticize the Patriots draft. So, yes, the Patriots, you know, great program, you know, all that stuff. But but they don't draft as well as their record indicates. So um, you're not being a hater by criticizing a Bill Belichick draft. He's missed on several wide receivers over the years. So, overall, I thought it was an average draft from the Patriots. Why do you think – I feel like we – because I feel like we give the – the Patriots a lot more credit than they deserve in the draft. They haven't had a, a really good draft in a, a while, if I'm if I'm not mistaken myself. Why do you think we give them the benefit of the doubt? Do you think it's just because they went and you have Brady and Belichick and it masks everything on the field? Yeah, I think a lot of people would kind of just look at the you know look at the record and kind of assume you know you know if you're twelve and four for like eleven straight years or whatever it is. You know, obviously you're building the middle class of your roster. You got depth like that, um, but but I mean, it's a it's a room that struggles at the skill position. So they're going to need to really lean on that offensive line of Sonny Michelle. Um, they got Camille Harry. 
at wide receiver, you know, those two rookie tight ends. It, it's not the best skill room. Um, and then and then with the defensive side of the football, that's all Belichick, and that's all team and coaching. you got to give them credit, though, for what they do and kind of just take it up trash from the heat. Like a Kyle Van Noy, they turned him into a really good player in that system, though. But he's been a, he's been a journeyman NFL player, stuff like that. So you get the benefit of the doubt from kind of how they go about developing their defense and play and only taking what guys do well and having them do it repeatedly. But overall, if you're looking at it holistically from the surface, I think there's a lot to be desired with the Patriots draft. So you'd give them a C? Yeah, I'd give them a C. Uh, C minus even. Just because, like, okay, so they didn't address quarterback. They need skilled guys on the outside to help whoever's playing quarterback. They didn't do anything at the skilled position. Um, kind of had a backup tight, tight end class to begin with. They go with two on uh, round three. Those guys should be starters in round three. So we'll have to see how that is. But um, it, was a, it, it was one of the drafts I didn't really like much. So Now let's go to the New York Jets. J-E-T-S. Jets, Jets, Jets. They get Mackay Becton. Tackle out of Louisville. Uh, was he your number one? No, he was your number three tackle, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Kenny. Uh, some people had him as their number one. Ta- uh, had him as their number one tackle. What did you make of the New York Jets draft? Yeah, so so I had um, I had Beckton as my third tackle. So the New York Jets. Um, so they they had to get Sam Darnold protection at left tackle. They ended up doing that um, with pick 11. So, so they spent a high capital pick on, on Mekhi Becton uh, to anchor them. And then they need wide receivers at the skill position, too. So then they come back with Denzel Mims. Nice player. I think round two, pick 59 is a really good sweet spot for him. I think he could have even gone higher in the draft. So so he's their big wide receiver that they're going to build around um, on on offense. And then, and then they come back with with three guys, three, three pool guys, like pool guys as in like, you know, you're kind of rotating in your first few years, but guys with upside. So, so Ashton Davis, track star, really fast to play over the top. He's just injured and beat up, or he would have been in kind of like that top four, top five safety class. So, so they get him um, at safety. They get Jabari Zanuga, who I like a lot. Um, you know, not, not as long as you'd like an edge rusher, but athletic enough to play the run, occasionally get you some pass rush. And then they get LaMichael Perrine, who I think would be a really good backup for Le'Veon Bell. I liked him at the senior bowl. He did good at the combine. You could catch the football, you know, sprinkle in some runs there. So so they got, you know, depth there on a team, you know, that has had their injuries. And then they get a, a, a backup quarterback who, of all the backups, like the potential day three guys, James Morgan was the guy I liked the best. He had some interviews with some high-profile offensive coaches like the Patriots and the Saints. Um, I kind of like him to run an offense the way it's supposed to be ran and kind of stay in structure if he needs to be. So, I mean, overall, I think they had a combination of quality and quantity there. Um, but they did the two main things that they should have done on the first two picks. Get Sam Darnold a wide receiver and fix that offensive line. And I think they did that there with the first two picks. What grade would you give the Jets? Yeah, so I give them a B. I think it was an above average draft. I think if you're ranking kind of the draft, they'd be between, you know, 10 and 16. Um, You know, other than the first two picks, not like high talent players, but I think they're taken in the right spot. And I think they got a lot of guys to fill kind of that fill fill that second level of their depth chart. So I think so. So I give them a solid B. I think Joe Douglas did a pretty good job for his first year as GM. Okay, and that's how we wrap up the AFC East. And I want to thank Kenny Sim for coming on the show. Appreciate him giving his grades out, his teacher hat for the draft for the AFC East, AFC North. Next podcast, we're going to go into the AFC West and AFC South, so you're going to want to stay tuned for that. Now, kind of next after the break on Barbershop Sports Talk, I'm going to tell you why. The basketball, if it does start, right, talked about at the beginning of the show, 
could potentially be atrocious and hideous and maybe lead to an unexpected team winning it all. And how? Gundam next after the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. with Barbershop Sports Talk. And once again, I want to thank Kenny Sim for coming on the pod. Always appreciate my man. It's Kenny coming on. Now, now here's what I want to talk about, right? If we do assume that uh, the NBA will start, my biggest concern, but besides Corona, obviously, is the basketball that's going to be played. Because I want everybody to think about this. To go back to Michael Jordan for a minute. Let's assume... And I'm going to tell Kareem Abdul-Jabbar supporters, LeBron James supporters, chill for a minute for who's the greatest. Let's assume Michael's the greatest, and it's not close, right? Michael, and I, and I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, and, it's, and everybody that's been watching the documentary should know this. He retired in the prime of his career, the peak of his powers, arguably the greatest player of all time, for sure the best player in the NBA at that point in time. And then he comes back, and they play Orlando. And the conference finals. And they lose. Now, people might say it was because Michael, the, the, the Magic were just so good, right? Right? Shaq and Penny were just at another level. No. Michael was rusty. He wasn't in basketball shape and he wasn't necessarily ready to go. And Michael, unlike what the other players are going to have, Michael came back and Michael had like, uh, like 20 or 30 games, something like that to play. These players, they're going to have 10 at the least, 10 at the most, and then they're going to have to go right into the playoffs. Michael had more time, and Michael still struggled. And I want to show you Michael's stats, which is crazy. Michael had his worst year. His worst year, not because he got injured his second year, so I'm not going to count that, and his rookie year, right? And the Washington Wizards years. But besides that, really the prime of his Chicago Bull career. His worst year was the year he came back from baseball and they played Orlando, the Orlando Magic in the conference finals. His lowest points per game, 27. His worst shooting percentage, 41%. Michael, 41% is awful, by the way. It's awful, right? <laughs> well, Michael Jordan's like a career 49%, almost 50% from the field, and he was shooting 41%. That's a huge difference. You're going to see the level drop off. And right, we all knew, everybody knew at the time that Michael was better than Shaq, but Shaq young, healthy, strong physical body, on a roll, Michael take you know a little bit of time to gear up, and he ended up gearing up the next year, and the Bulls won 72 games or whatever it was, right? How's LeBron going to be when the season starts? You know, we, everybody knows LeBron James takes him a while to get going. How's Giannis going to be, even though Giannis is younger? Or is, it, or is Giannis going to be ready to go, and as opposed to while LeBron will not be? We're going to see a lot of that, and I think that could potentially lead to maybe a team. People have talked about this. The Houston Rockets, they're just hot for some reason from three-point range, and they just win the whole thing, and everybody's going to be pissed off. Like, you have to worry about how everybody's going to play starting off. The whole thing about the playoffs, the whole point about the playoffs is about peaking at the right time. These players, these teams, they're not going to be able to peak. When you don't do something for a couple of months and then they're like, hey, do it at the highest level, that's not easy. In fact, it's very, very hard. And there's going to be lumps and bumps. And maybe it leads to the lesser team with lesser players winning. And that's what happened with the Orlando Magic. They beat the Bulls right that year. And then you see the next year when Michael's ready, they sweep the Magic. There's a difference. So if it can happen to Michael... And we're going to say, let's say Michael and LeBron are contemporaries. It can happen to LeBron. And if it can happen to LeBron, LeBron comes back and struggles. Well, then it's fair game for everybody, right? <laughs> fair game for everybody. I want to thank once again, Kenny Sim for coming on the podcast. Always appreciate it. And I want to thank everybody for tuning into this episode, the 155th episode of 
Barbershop Sports Talk. You know, today, I just woke up, and I said, you know, instead of waiting on a good day, waiting around, through ups and downs, waiting on something to happen, I just said, 